Yes, the self in the Eastern view either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together. And this is a greater self inside and outside the person. I sort of like those views much better. I, uh, I, I read a lot of Alan Watts in those days, and <clears throat> I really liked Alan Watts' book about not existing or not being, as he called it. And I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. Uh, because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, ex- you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist, and maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a, a hallucination of some greater force. Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I still think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because what my life has consisted of is great amounts of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing, as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing, as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kerbisky on this one. So I really think that we we do. We, we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I, you know, the grief had me tortured inside for many, many years. And, and when I was 19, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender. And at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians. And they were very, very crazed, in in my opinion. Um, So, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all, you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, yes, the self in the Eastern view either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together. And this is a greater self inside and outside the person. I sort of like those views much better. I uh, I, I read a lot of Alan Watts in those days, and <clears throat> I really liked Alan Watts' book about not existing or not being, as he called it. And I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. Uh, because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, ex- you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist. And maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a, a hallucination of some greater force Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I just don't think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because what my life has consisted of is great amounts 
of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kabiski on this one. So I really think that we, we do. We, we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I, you know, the grief had me tortured inside for many, many years. And, and when I was 19, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender. And at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians. And they were very, very crazed, in in my opinion. Um, So, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, Yes, the self, in the Eastern view, either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together, and this is a greater self inside and outside the person. I sort of like those views much better. I... uh, I read a lot of Alan Watts in those days, and I really liked Alan Watts' book about not existing or not being, as he called it. And I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. uh, Because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist, and maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a hallucination of some greater force. Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I still think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because what my life has consisted of is great amounts of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kabiski on this one. So I really think that we we do. We we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I you know, the grief had me tortured inside for many, many years. And and when I was nineteen, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender. And at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians, and they were very, very crazed, in in my opinion. Um, So, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all, you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I, uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my, uh, 
Uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, yes, the self in the Eastern view either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together, and this is a greater self inside and outside the person. I sort of like those views much better. I, uh, I, I read a lot of Alan Watts in those days, and I really liked Alan Watts' book about not existing or not being, as he called it. And I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. Uh, because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, ex- you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist. And maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a, a hallucination of some greater force. Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I just don't think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because what my life has consisted of is great amounts of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kerbisky on this one. So I really think that we, we do. We, we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I, you know, the grief had me tortured inside for many, many years, and and when I was 19, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender, and at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians, and they were very, very crazed, in, in my opinion. Um, <clears throat> so, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, Good evening. This is Mondo Homunculero. This is the Mondo Homunculero podcast coming from Thanet Arrow Studios, deep in the heart of Casa de Mondo Zaskia. Tonight, and this is the first nighttime podcast I've done in quite a while, this is the first of three parts. The first part has to do with a couple of different topics. First of all, we're going to talk about the self. Then we're going to talk about man's relationship to others. And then we're going to talk about the relationship to the divine or God or whatever you want to call it. Those three. And I'm going to do this from a personal perspective and tie in the knowledge that I have and the experience that I have with all of this. The 
The self. Okay, so my relationship with myself has been... It has been what, I guess, what you could say has happened. Uh, my earliest memories come from me living in a trailer park with my parents when I was about four and a half years old. After my sisters were born. And, uh... Good evening. This is Mondo Hamakularo. This is the Mondo Homunculero podcast coming from Thanet Aero Studios, deep in the heart of Casa de Mondo Saskia. Tonight, and this is the first nighttime podcast I've done in quite a while, this is the first of three parts. The first part has to do with a couple of different topics. First of all, we're going to talk about the self. Then we're going to talk about man's relationship to others. And then we're going to talk about the relationship to the divine or God or whatever you want to call it. Those three. And I'm going to do this from a personal perspective and tie in the knowledge that I have and the experience that I have with all of this. The self. Okay, so my relationship with myself has been, it has been what I guess what you could say has happened. Uh, My earliest memories come from me living in a trailer park with my parents when I was about four and a half years old. After my sisters were born. And, uh, Hi, this is Mondo Homunculero. This is Sunday night, the 11th of July, in Hotter Than Hell, Phoenix. And I'm coming to you live from Thanatero Studios, deep in the heart of Casa de Mondo Zasquia. Tonight is the first part of a three-part podcast I'm doing, which came to me uh, from an old professor I had in my first year in college, he was looking at a few things, but mainly his was a literary perspective on man, his relationship to himself, his relationship to fellow humans, and also relationship to the divine. <clears throat> Albeit this was a humanistic perspective. I learned quite a bit from that, and it set the stage for me as a 19-year-old for the rest of my life, basically. My relationship with myself, earliest memories come from me being about four and a half, five years old, walking around this trailer park that was close to a school. And I would walk by the fence by the playground with a tablet in my hand, with a with a writing tablet in my hand. And I wanted to be in school. That's all I can remember. I wanted to learn more. Uh, I had a lot of toys also. I wasn't interested in the toys. I like to have kids over and let them play with the toys. And then I would watch them play with the toys and, uh, and see what they were doing. I didn't care much 
for interacting with them, although I did a bit. My mother was my kind of my chief parent at that point. She was my chief contact with my emotional and psychological life. Uh, my father was kind of distant. And after the twins, my two sisters were born, he sort of took me over. And he began taking me places with him. I remember going up to our ranch, our cattle ranch, which was by Roosevelt Lake. I remember going up the old Apache Trail, which was mainly a dirt road. And it was kind of a scary drive going through the Salt River Canyon. I remember that fear. As I got older, my father instilled a lot of fear and shame and guilt in me. He was a, what have you done for me today kind of guy. And he he was on a short timetable. He knew he was dying. He'd been gassed in World War I. Uh, it, it put a large tumor on his chest wall that was full of cancer that didn't metastasize that had to be removed. And for, from that point on, he had this dance with life that was going to result in his death. And he was like a, a higher power to me. He was like a god to me. I, I had no concept of uh, God at that point. I was pretty much just locked into the family dynamic. And you know, when your god treats you like shit and demeans you and puts you down, tells you you're never going to be worth anything until you prove your worth, You know, I didn't have a very good opinion of myself, as I found out later. And I grew to hate him. Because he was such a mean son of a bitch. Now, he was very well loved by other men. And he was a man's man, and he was very tough, and he did have a tough form of compassion. He he was all about the underdog. And others told me he thought the world of me, but he didn't show me that to my face. And so that was not a good thing to do. And when I started working with my own son, I didn't treat him that way. I treated him like he was gold. Unfortunately, he had an inherent death wish and wound up taking his own life at the age of 30. Pretty sad. At any rate, my relationship with myself began to develop after my father died when I was 16. And up to that point, I just wanted him to be out of the way, but I also wanted to take over the family empire of horse racing and cattle ranching. Primarily, I wanted to run the horse racing. I thought I could be a great uh, thoroughbred trainer, horse racing trainer. And as it turned out, I didn't get the opportunity because of his death. At that point, everything kind of went out the window for me. I felt lost. I thought maybe I would uh, practice uh, or, you know, get a law degree, learn to practice law. Had an inn at Dartmouth College. Didn't, Didn't take up on it was interested in women and girlfriends, had a couple of girlfriends, had one girlfriend, 
that I was with for a long time and kind of introduced ourselves to sexuality even though we were still virgins when we broke up. Wound up going with her former best girlfriend and losing uh, or, or breaking the virginity or whatever, becoming sexually active with her. That was a beautiful thing. She was a beautiful person. Still is, I guess, from what I hear from people who know her. She's been married, has children, beat breast cancer. Kind of a tough deal for her, but what a lovely person she was and probably still is. Now, me, I was really not liking myself and not liking what my milieu was. My family wanted me to become a veterinarian. And I didn't really want to be a veterinarian, but I thought, what the heck, if I do it, I can make money and I can be on the racetrack and be close to the horse racing that I loved. I went to to community college and then went to uh, undergraduate and back to high school now. High school was actually a great experience for me, even after my father's death. I didn't grieve it too well, so I started getting involved with recreational drugs like like uh, cannabis and uh, alcohol. Alcohol was not a good thing for me. Uh, cannabis probably would have been if the alcohol hadn't been around. And it wasn't always around. And back in those days, the cannabis was really weak. It wasn't very strong. So you didn't get real high when you smoked a bunch of Mexican weed. High school was a lot of fun, especially junior and senior years. There was a group of us that hung out together quite a bit. And actually, a lot of us still hang out occasionally. It's pretty cool to be my age and be connected with those people, and they're great people, and I love them dearly, and I love getting together with them when I can. So that was a great experience for me as well, high school. Uh, Excellent. I did well in school. I graduated in the top 5%. Uh, I was very social studies oriented. Started to get into art uh, at the end of high school, and... I was in the Model UN. We had the Model UN that we did every year, and I was in that. I've forgotten now what country it was that I represented. I think it might have been New Zealand, but I'm not I'm not completely sure. At any rate, that was a lot of fun. Ran for student government, became senior class vice president. Ran a pretty, a pretty aggressive campaign. Beat out my uh, opponent, who was a, a conservative, even then, like... Richard Nixon, oh my God. Now, that was when I became involved in left-wing ideologies and politics. Had a friend who's still a friend, actually kind of resurfaced a few years ago through social media, who is a physician now and has been a physician for many, many years. And he introduced me to left-wing politics, to Abby Hoffman and... You know, Abby Hoffman was kind of my favorite. So was the other guy, uh, Jerry Rubin. He was in the Chicago 7. And all those guys. And this, this the uh, Students for a Democratic Society, of which I was a member of a, of, a, of a high school wing of it called Student Mobilization Committee. 
went to a lot of marches and protests and all those types of things and really liked it. Now, all this time, I was really not aware of my relationship with myself. I was just kind of a, a ship cut adrift. And when my girlfriend, who meant the world to me, probably would have married her if she would have stayed here if her parents didn't move away. My girlfriend, uh, when she moved away, it, uh, I was destroyed. And I think a lot of that was grief that was misplaced from the death of my father that I never felt. So I kind of went crazy after that and kind of stayed crazy for quite a while. Did some really <laughs> horrible things. Basically told her parents that her and I had had sex and that they were dirty, no good bastards and all that kind of thing. Which they were. They were very controlling of her. And I think one of the reasons they moved was to get her away from me. They felt that if they got to a nice, safe community, she wouldn't be involved with drugs anymore. And maybe she always did not want to be involved with drugs, but she didn't use drugs that much anyway. So around this time, I began to experiment with psychedelics. And I would kind of experience what one of my later friends would call psychedelic shame when I would... uh, get loaded it would be a very profound experience on on LSD especially most of the time it was like I acknowledged the connection to everything in other words what in the Timothy Leary's 8th circuit model says is the 8th circuit you know a connection with the mother load with the everything with the all you know, with what some people call God, I, I really didn't like calling that God. It was just, it was too big to be called that, in my opinion. So I got connected with that, and that was a very profound and a very positive thing. And there were a lot of things that came out of that that later on made sense. And I, I went from there to going to school, went all the way through pre-veterinary Woke up one morning, decided didn't want to do that, and uh, got got into research for a while. Worked on a master's degree in a really cool program uh, that didn't make it to PhD, and I was really sad about that. It's kind of a drag, and uh, so that was what I was doing then, and that went on for about six years. Not the grad school, but the entire college career. And during this time, still had this kind of feeling of inner strength. However, felt very lost. Now, there were some things that came up during that time period from the teen years up through the mid-20s, one of which is that the self doesn't exist. Apologies for the interruption with devices not being set up and going into the making noise. I got swept into the cult, which was called at the time the Phoenix Light Temple. Uh, They were crazy. I had this really wild uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit experience where this this feeling came over me. And I I had to be in this one specific spot at the altar, which maybe there was some kind of device, some electronic or electromagnetic device under it that caused this to happen. But it it was a truly exhilarating experience, which had no mystical connection as far as I was concerned. It was it was physical. And at that point, I began to become uh, 
a well-ordained Jesus freak. At any rate, something was wrong with all of that. It, it didn't really work for me, and I don't think it works because I don't believe that it's real. I think it's a falsehood. And I think believing in any God for any period of time uh, is can be very beneficial in that we can take on the characteristics of that God, this is called invocation, or we can ask that God to protect us or to strengthen us in some way. And if we believe it's strong enough, that uh, intention will come to us and come to fruition in a lot of cases. That doesn't mean that God actually exists or is real. At that point, uh, I had gone back to college. I took a course from uh, Dr. Melvin Weiser, and he was a, uh, a writer. He was a screenwriter and actually wrote quite a bit of the little big man script. And uh, he liked to view the Bible as literature. We had a book which was called The Bible as Literature. And so we began to look at the Bible as literature and, and see that how man changed in his neuroevolution, I call it that, we didn't back then, that the concept of God changed because we went from this, uh, in the Hebrew tradition, we went from this hateful, spiteful God who was trying to establish his people as the number one people in the world and give them all the breaks and then punish them when they did wrong things, all those types of things. So at that point, it got to be a little tedious. Uh, it was very good, though, because it taught me what I'm doing here today, which is my relationship to myself, my relationship to my fellow man, and my relationship to the divine. And so I, I saw how God changed in the persona of Jesus Christ and his writers, like Paul, from being this hateful, mean God to being a very loving and compassionate God who welcomed all. And there's a lot of dispute on whether any of that's correct or not. I'm not interested in that right at this point in, in this segment. At that point, I abandoned Christianity. I still had a superstitious belief in it, even had dreams where the devil was standing in the doorway of my bedroom and beckoning me. Of course, that was after I saw The Exorcist, and it gave a lot of people nightmares. I read the book as well. And what I say to anyone, you know, the subconscious can, uh, can pull in a lot of thoughts, ideas, and beliefs, and it can poison us. It can make us. It can make us do things we don't want to do. In moving on from that, I became more centered in my career, and from the age of sixteen, actually earlier, I began to drink. Which I, to me, alcohol is a drug. I was drinking alcohol again here recently after over thirty years of not participating in taking alcohol. And it was causing me a lot of physical problems like uh, inflammation and so forth, so I stopped drinking. During these years, from, from like 16 on, I was a heavy user of alcohol, cannabis, sometimes amphetamine, uh, psychedelics, which I don't consider to be a habitual drug to be abused, okay? 
and other drugs, even opium at one point. I used these drugs uh, quite a bit, I off and on. I, I would get straight for a few days, and then I would use for a few months. I remember staying drunk once for six years. That's right, I got drunk every day for six years. Then I also used cannabis along with the alcohol. Alcohol was not a drug of choice for me. It was more like the soup before the main courses. And drug use for me was more like a three to seven course meal. At one point I became involved with cocaine. Uh, Cocaine was a big love affair for me, but it was also the demon of the fall. In other words, it was a demon that almost destroyed my life. Not a real demon per se, However, just not a very good drug. Not, you know, maybe good for short bursts of whatever. Uh, you know, some of the things that Freud learned from cocaine, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, for me, it was, it was a bad situation because I, I used it very addictively. And uh, I was an IV drug user of that particular drug. Then I started having overdoses. Now, we're jumping now into my 30s. I started having overdoses all the while. I was still using quite a bit of alcohol. I was still uh, smoking a lot of cannabis so forth. This is not really a drug log, so I won't go into all of that. But at one point, it became very, very, very dangerous for me because I began overdosing, going into respiratory arrest and so forth. Uh, almost dying. I actually did die twice and came back. And my take on that is there's nothing out there. It's oblivion. Uh, You can say whatever you want to say. I had some of the experiences. However, they didn't play out. They're just basically the artifacts of, of my own mind. And during this time, I began to examine my relationship to myself at one point in 1987, well, actually 1986, I had a very, almost fatal, well, it was a fatal overdose that I came back to life from. I was in a coma for three days. Before that, I had died and come back to life. And at that point, I had a profound realization that what I was doing was killing me and that I had better stop if I wanted to continue living. And the bottom line was, I wanted to live more than I wanted to die. And what I was doing was going to cause my death. So it was sort of a form of uh, suicide, as it's, as they say in the program, suicide on the installment plan. At that point, I got involved in the 12-step program of Narcotics Anonymous. I went to a treatment center. I got help. And what I found out is I don't, I didn't have to use anymore. I also found out that You know, I could hang around with a bunch of people who weren't using and who had found a way to live without using. However, I began to see the flaws in that and that it was a cult. It is a cult. Uh, I watch the way people live in it and practice it and believe about it, and it's a cult. And, okay, if you want to be in a cult, that's okay with me. I'm not going to be in that cult. I don't want to be a part of that cult. I don't like it. I don't like the lies and misinformation that it spreads because I don't believe addiction is a disease. I don't think there's anything to warrant that it's a disease, even though it may cause disease, even though it has a disease condition which may follow or two or five. 
addiction itself is not a disease. It's it's. I like how it's now defined in the DSM, the latest uh, version, as a substance abuse disorder. And I had that, and I overcame it. And how did I overcome it? By not participating in it and by finding other pursuits. Well, I stayed clean for a long time. Now, I don't use the word sober because I think it's inadequate to describe uh, the abstinence that I undertook. I think sober is a ridiculously old, antiquated term from Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a program I despise. Why do I despise it? I'm not going to go into that. That's not the subject of this. However, I believe it hurts more people than it helps and it turns people away who need the kind of help it could offer if it was just basically peer support. And in that, I began to do a lot of self-development work because I found that the 12 steps didn't want to admit it because, let, let's face it, I was a dedicated cult member. I was what they called an N.A. purist, or Nazi as a you know, derogatory term. I didn't like... I didn't like uh, Narcotics Anonymous Fellowship that much. There were a lot of people there who I think are deranged. Uh, they're, uh, they're the kind of people that would vote for Trump. They're the kind of people that just have these crazy, crazy views on, on life. And those views are not my perspective. Increasingly, I began to see that the God that I had before was not real and that, you know, maybe I should adopt some other form of higher power. So I began to embrace, like, uh, the Taoist uh, higher power type of, uh, of thinking, uh, God as the all of everything type of thinking, the mother load, all of that. Only to find that, for me, that wasn't real as well that there is no God. There might be some conglomeration of cosmic forces that have some kind of say-so in determining the direction that life on Earth goes, or even life throughout the universe, or even the progress or the entropy of the universe. However, my science education became very strong and caused me to become more of an atheist materialist with a deterministic view on things to a certain extent. I didn't want to accept hardcore determinism because I I believed in free will quite a bit and that we had a big say-so in our destinies. And today I still believe we have a say-so in our destinies. We are restricted by biological factors. We are restricted by several different factors like the opportunities that we may have in our lives. And I saw that firsthand. And through that time period of about, I'd say the first 15 years, there was a lot of progress that was made due to some self-development programs that I engaged in outside of Narcotics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous came, kind of gave me a foothold. And uh, nowadays I, I view the self as this. I started out believing there was probably no self. And then I started to believe that there was a self and that God made it and that God didn't make junk, so I had infinite worth. This was something I learned from a program called Omega Vector, which borrowed those ideas, of course, from somewhere else. 
Then I evolved away from that in that back to my Buddhist views, which there is no self. Nothing is real. Everything is almost like a dream. The ultimate reality is connecting with the cosmic power of the universe, which is not a sentient power. It just is the power that kind of is the underlying force of the universe. So the force be with you sort of thing. And through that, I began to see that the self, once you get self-esteem, you don't need it anymore because there is no self. And it's actually a beautiful thing because there's nothing to put down, nothing to build up. There's things to do and that we can decide on what we want to do. And I kind of like what Camus, Albert Camus, said about all this. Now, Camus thought everything was absurd. He was an absurdist. And he thought that the main problem in our world was ignorance. People just don't know enough about themselves, others, or anything else uh, to really shape their own destiny, so to speak. Camus believed that you create your own reality and your own universe, so to speak. And that's what I grasped onto and still believe today, that we create our own realities. Now, I also like what Robert Anton Wilson had written about quite a bit, which is reality tunnels. Now, if you don't know who Robert Anton Wilson is, he wrote many books. He's easy to access on the Internet. You can look his writings up. He even has quite a few videos uh, of his uh, talks, his audio talks on YouTube. You can listen to a lot of those and see where he was coming from. And he was big on Leary's Eight Circuit Model. And I went all the way through the model, and, and I thought that that applied to me uh, very, very well. I, I, you know, I, I think nowadays that we, we engage ourselves in philosophies and thinking that fits what is now our model of realities or the universe. Nowadays, I think basically along evolutionary lines that uh, our biological purpose has to do with reproducing. And that's really what our purpose, if there is one, is. And that the rest of everything is kind of contrived. Meaning, like what uh, Dr. Donald Hoffman says, and I, I just can't push his ideas enough to you all, not that you would subscribe to him whatsoever, or you might think he's completely full of shit. However, he thinks that everything is kind of useful sets of falsehoods in other words almost like icons on a computer screen that are not visual representations of the ones and zeros that make up the programming and that there probably is an ultimate reality beyond everything however we don't know what it is and we don't have to because we are here simply to evolve and when i look at this on a long-term level what i see is that we have evolved. Homo sapiens, sapiens, which is what we are species-wise, has been evolving for 100,000 years. And most of that has been neuroevolution. Our nervous systems have adapted socially and evolved socially into very complex relationships and so forth. And this is written about in great detail by many authors. 
And I think that that's, to me, very plausible and a very useful falsehood, as it were, according to Hoffman's model. And once I got rid of the whole self-esteem nightmare, I do think that it is good practice to go through all the steps. In other words, realize that you probably have a self, in other words, an individual self, and that it has infinite worth, and that your job is to build it up and give yourself credit for having infinite worth. And once that is attained, and you can, and it isn't perfect, there's caveats, there's pluses and minuses, there's assets and liabilities inside that self. And when we accept that, we get a sense of a humility. And this will lead us, if we wish, to the next step, which is no self. And that goes back to the ideas of Wilson and Korbisky and and uh, even to some extent Crowley, not so much Crowley. But a lot of the later age folks, that the self is a contrivance, we contrive it. And I kind of lay that over on the model that Diltz developed, which is uh, a great model as far as I'm concerned, which says that all of us need to identify what our mission in life is or our purpose and create that if we don't have one intrinsically or if the one that we find intrinsically is not to our liking. And these are called logical levels. Now, once again, none of this is the absolute truth. These are just useful pathways as far as I'm concerned. And the very first one is that mission, uh, that purpose in life. Then the second stage of that. Now, this is an overused term in the last five, ten years, purpose. People got to have this purpose. And it gets very much misconstrued because there's a lot of ignorance behind it. There's, In other words, there's not enough discovery and exploration of what that can really mean. Since I adopt the view that uh, life is, uh, happens through doing and not being, then purpose centers around what that consists of. Now, um, mine has to do with creativity and personal power. Increasing and maintaining creative personal power. That's my purpose or mission. Then we have our identity. Now, I'm not going to go all the way into all of these because they're not important here. Just to tell you that these have worked for me and they've been working for a long time now. And I've had a lot of personal success in life because I've adopted these. And of course, I've done a lot of wrong things. I've done things, made big mistakes, lost a lot of money, made a lot of money, uh, had good relationships which lasted for years and then didn't continue anymore, things like that. And through all of this, I have this sense of, man, I'm just doing what I'm doing, and in the end, it's working out well. And the second part is identity, and I see identity as malleable. In other words, we can change our identity to suit our purpose. We can create and destroy our identities as we're going along. In other words, we can do that dance of Shiva with our identities. And it's a very good thing.
there's several other levels in the logical levels that was put forth by Robert Diltz. At some point, I became a student of uh, neurolinguistic programming. I am by no means an expert on it. I am a practitioner. I was trained by a couple of guys that I have great respect for in that. And uh, we had a falling out over not wanting to be a follower of anything, which is just the way I am. I don't want to be your follower. I don't necessarily want to lead you either. I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm working at improving the results that I get. Because for me, life today is all about results. And my relation to myself is probably the best it's ever been because I have placed at the center of it health. My health is more important than anything. I've survived hepatitis C. I've survived several other uh, health problems, diseases and so forth, and come through them very, very well and, and, and been restored to a type of health uh, that I had before I, I got these problems. Today I'm working with a lot of back problems uh, which have decreased my mobility and things like that. And I just hope that uh, I can continue to progress. Uh, I had a lot of neuropathy and now I'm feeling my toes and the bottoms of my feet. And it's a wonderful situation. And in closing this segment, I just want to say that this has all been very, very helpful for me. My relationship with, with, with myself has grown very much so. And it has bled over, of course, into my relationship with others. There's been, there's been a cross, uh, crossing there, a crossover there, because a lot of my relationships with others have improved my relationship with myself. So this is the end of part one. It's by no means the end of this personal study. However, I'm going to go on to part two uh, in the next segment. Good morning, everyone. It's time for part two of the three important relationships according to my view. In our first segment, I talked a lot about my relationship with myself. Suffice it to say, because of all the work that I have done, it is excellent today. It probably is still due for improvement and I always work on improving. That is my thrust. So I am working on improving myself and how I deal with reality reality is perceived this segment deals with my relationship with others meaning family friends acquaintances people I meet on the street people I talk to over the phone in business organizations government businesses it entails quite a bit and I think much of the uh, progress that's been made in that has come as a result of my relationship improving with myself some of the relationship with myself 
has improved because of my relationship with others. I have seen others exhibit behavior which I think is very conducive to improvement of my general lot. Yeah, people can do some things that are admirable, and I have seen much admirable behavior, and I have attempted to model that behavior and had success when I have done it efficiently. For instance, if somebody has a way of tolerating others who generally many would think are obnoxious, only for the purpose maybe of being able, of having the ability to build rapport with them and communicate with them for some purpose. And then there are those who we become aware of their behavior. It's not conducive to our general lot or welfare, and so we don't associate with them. These are very simple, easy easy things to do, and uh, for that, I fall back to the four agreements as a basis. One, if I keep my word to myself and do not allow other people's opinions to affect me negatively, and when I do hear a negative opinion, to be able to deconstruct it and find what might have some positive import in it. And there is positive import in some what I consider to be negative opinions. For instance, let's talk about free speech for a minute. Now, there's this big controversy in uh, social politics, I call it, about free speech on social media. Social media is all privately owned. And so they have the right, the administrators of that media have the right to censor. If you don't like it, don't be on that social media. Or just use it for what you want. You can eliminate, for instance, on Facebook, you can eliminate news articles and information and people uh, that you don't want in your feed. So you don't have to get input, input from negative sources or what you consider to be a negative source. You have the ability to censor. Now, some people want to be able to consider all opinions and ideas on everything. I have no quarrel with that. I'm one of those people. However, there are places to go get those alternative ideas. For instance, you have this thing called Getter, and then before that you had Parler, and before that you had, before he got kicked out, Trump on Twitter. Well, my opinion, Trump doesn't belong on Twitter, nor Facebook, nor Instagram. He doesn't belong on any of these. Why? Because he's negative. Overall, he's negative. He's all about his own his own milieu, which is narcissism. I uh, listened to a talk that was a few years old. It was actually it was previous to the 2016 election of Tony Schwartz, who ghost-authored The Art of the Deal for Trump. And he laid it out in, in a few minutes. Trump is only concerned with Trump and the promotion and attention that Trump can get 
from doing whatever he does. Trump has a short attention span, reads very little, if at all, mostly headlines, and then has an opinion on things that's usually skewed erroneously. Now, I think that Trump gets covered too much uh, by the mainstream news media and cable news. I, I just, you know, we don't need to give this guy a lot of coverage, except for here's a speech, here's what was in it, and here's our critique of it, and here's two or three other critiques of it, and put it in writing. Don't waste our airwave time with that crap. Same thing with Nazis and uh, Christian fascists and all these factions. Yes, we need to know what these people are about. We need to know their ethic or lack of ethic or we need to know what their ideology and opinions are. Why do we need to know it? Because embrace your friends, embrace your enemies closer. In my experience, people tend to have a Pollyannish view. A lot of people. It's just like we were looking at the, uh, you know, the commentators on MSNBC and CNN this morning. We're looking at the primary election results and and how this Chantel bitch beat Nina Turner, and Nina Turner had had a multiple digit lead. And then the corporate Democrats came out, pumped a lot of money and a lot of propaganda out there, and so this Chantel Brown. She got the nod. Bad. Bad. And then, you know, to these, these dickhead commentators like Heilman are on there saying, you know, smiling and saying, well, you see, people are moderate. People are moving to the middle. The middle is going to get us dead. Okay, enough of my opinion there. This is why I like to watch a wide variety of media sources. I want to get all the opinions and ideas so that I can continue to modify, form my own opinions and ideas. Now, let's take that over to relationships with others on a, on a one-on-one basis, first of all. Well, first of all, what I find is when people have radical opinions, you know, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm a leftist, I'm a far leftist, I'm not a Marxist, I don't know enough about Marx to really claim to be a Marxist. I will tell you this, I am a semi-educated socialist. And the one tenet of Marxism, I believe, is that when the workers own the means of production, we have the greatest democracy. Now, a lot of people are scared to death of that. And when I find one that is who's willing to listen, and I and I don't, you know, my problem is, is I'm very opinionated, as you can tell, as you know. And I'm also very aggressive at times, too aggressive sometimes. And I'm also very assertive. Now, I need to stick with the calm assertiveness. That's what people will listen to. And ask a question like, well, have you, have you educated yourself on this topic? Do, do you really know what it means? Not with the purpose necessarily of persuading them to my point of view, unless it's a situation which is going to be beneficial to the social welfare of everyone. I will find out what they're all about, and if they seem to be 
very rigid in their in their thinking and opinions, uh, we're done. I move on from there because I'm not going to spend a bunch of time trying to convince a fence post that's made of wood that it's iron. I'm not going to do it, and these people will not are not willing to change. However, unfortunately, in their erroneousness, they have a lot of input on what goes on. These people vote, and they vote for some very wrong shit. And we all know what my opinions are on that. Now I'm going to move away from that. So this is why, in working one-on-one, it's, it's good to find out, in my opinion, what other people are about. Because what they think, what they feel, what they do, and what they don't do is about them. It is not about me. And that's where that first agreement comes in about staying, I don't like being, I don't like to use the word being, staying impeccable with my word. And that means if my word is to investigate and either embrace or eliminate. So if that person's opinion is very rigid, unchangeable, and if they are not a worthwhile possible acquaintance or friend, I move on. And I don't I strive not to take them personally. See, there's the second agreement. Whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you think, whatever you do or don't do is about you. It's not about me. Now, if I take that personally, then I've crossed over the edge. Now, if what you do and think and speak impacts me directly, deleteriously, the fifth agreement kind of comes in there, we're going to have a discussion about it. Or... I'm going to eliminate my association with you completely. And I do that quite a bit. And I have to because some of these people are, are, are you know, they're, in my opinion, are way out there. And I just really don't want to. And they're not going to change. And I'm not here to persuade them. I don't get a lot of juice out of that. I can do it. I have done it. I've done well at it. These days in my life and times, I'm not about persuading others Unless it's going to be beneficial for all of us. And I think I have done that to some degree. And that is the point of my activism socially. Now, in the relationships that have meaning. Now, I've had family members, okay, that I disagree with vehemently on several things. I don't discuss those things with them because I want to have a relationship with them. Now, so long as I don't violate my own integrity by having that relationship it works out okay it's not good it's not bad it's just okay it's middle of the road and i've had to do that with several family members and that's okay and you know they can think what they think and what they want to think and believe what they want to believe i have a family member that won't well i have two or three family members that won't get vaccinated because they just have stupid ideas about it and i've told them go get the fucking shot And now, if you don't have the shot, you're probably going to get COVID. Okay, so a couple of them are really young and healthy, and they may not get very sick. Or they may get really sick and might die. The other one is a lot older, and it's very, 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 very dangerous what she's doing. At any rate, I'm not going to talk about her anymore. And so I really worked at convincing her and attempting to persuade her that 
her thinking on this was unhealthy and could result in a lot of damage and very dangerous. So there's the other part. Now, organizations. You know, the one-on-one, you know, for instance, if I was looking to to uh, have a relationship with a woman, a one-on-one, um, emotional, uh, sexual, uh, intellectual relationship with a woman, if I was looking for that, there's several things I find out before I attempt to uh, move in on one of those areas. The emotional one kind of gives everything away, along with the uh, intellectual one. Um, more women these days seem to embrace rational thinking, which I think is a good thing. However, their base and their emotional base is different than ours. Uh, their, their emotional base is different. And, and women work with their feelings by talking about them. Whereas men, unless they have a highly feminized part of themselves, nothing wrong with that, work through their feelings by doing things about it, uh, by expressing it physically a lot of times, or talking to their male friends about it. And the problem with males, now there's two types of males. There's men who are mature, and then there's males who are stuck in adolescence, or even pre-adolescence. Look at, look at that uh, orange pus bag. He's a toddler, basically, in a lot of his emotional states. Now, at one point, I was active in the men's movement and my view of it and the way to approach it. Not like Jordan Peterson, who, that son of a bitch, absolutely has no importance in that, as far as I'm concerned. He's rehashing some of the better ideas that came about in the men's movement of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And in that, that's great. However, if these young males would go into that literature, listen to some of those talks, like on YouTube or TED, uh, talk to people that actually work with cultivating mature manhood, maybe even take some seminars and, and, and do some growth and development work in that area, they could become mature men. Most will not do it. So they latch on uh, to his 10 rule, this a fucking fascist Canadian. You know, he's not really a fascist, but he is a Western Canadian, and they tend to be very politically conservative. Anyway, I've explored Jordan Peterson, and uh, he's not even worth a trip to the toilet. In my opinion, I have no use for him. Now, here's another thing when it comes to relationships with others. We forget human nature. Now, a lot of times, if I don't like someone, I will rant about it. I work very hard not to make it personal, to name the person and to take them personally. And when I do that, when I don't take them personally, there's nothing to discuss. Other than if there's an impact. If there's an impact, then I will attack. And I will attack on the basis of what the impact consists of. First, if somebody accuses me of something I don't do, or accuses me of, uh, of something uh, due to my viewpoint, which is in contrast to theirs. Well, you know what? They don't like my viewpoint. They could go fuck themselves. Actually, they shouldn't fuck themselves. They could just go away. Maybe they should fuck themselves. It might be feel good, you know. 
you know, there's things that other people can do that will enhance them. And so getting in conflicts, uh, in silly conflicts with others is not a good practice. Now, some people react. If some Once in a while I bring out something. The other day I brought out uh, something about an old, old friend of mine. I think I spoke about this before. Who, you know, he, he makes a statement to me. Oh, so you're a Biden guy. Well... It pissed me off. And I reacted. I said, so, oh, you like Trump, huh? And then I went into a tirade about Trump, and the phone hung up. And then he called me back, and we talked some more. He said, yeah, you ought to come over. We ought to get together and do some things together. And I said, well, uh, maybe. Well, about an hour of thinking about it after that, it was, no, definitely not. One, it was too far for me to drive. And driving any more than... 20 minutes in a stretch makes me really stiff. Makes my hips stiffen up and makes my lower back stiffen up. So I don't go on any long drives. I, I wish I could. I like to take a drive up north to where our family, my paternal family, comes from. Just not able to do it. And don't want to go through the, the, the stuff with that. So I'm not going to see them. You know, I also... He's got a lot of opinions and thinking on things that are just really contrary to the way I think and live my life. And I don't really want to have an active friendship with that type of thinking, someone who has that kind of thing. I really care about the guy. I really like him. But he won't get a vaccination. He, does, he, 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 he lives under the radar, which I'm not opposed to. You can do that. That's okay. You know, not my business anyway. And he doesn't vote, but he has an opinion about politics. So... My opinion about that is, well, if you don't vote, then your opinion about politics doesn't really, not really interested in it. And there's another one. I was with a massage therapist the other day. He was a great masseur. He does a great job. And we started talking about the virus. And I could tell that this fool was probably not vaccinated. And he starts talking about a couple of, a couple of people, and uh, one of which is Brett Weinstein, and the other of which is this. Uh, Corey uh, Schwartz or whatever his name, Corey somebody, Dr. Corey. Anyway, starts talking about him. And so he brings up the worming medicine that we use on horses called ivermectin and how effective it is and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know what? There's no studies that really prove that, so that's bullshit. And so I call things out like that because... People have embraced very dangerous ideas and thinking. Now, there's another idea. You know, there's a lot of ideas like that. For instance, that people think there's going to be herd immunity. Well, the science says there may not be. The thing about science is people misinterpret it. So you have to, I have to really watch their opinions on it. And usually I stray away from uh, those types of arguments because they're not going to change their mind. Because they don't want to educate themselves about science. They don't even have a proper view of it, for example. So when people are not interested in, in uh, or open-minded enough to hear another side of a coin, so to speak, and possibly change their view, which could be, their current view could be very erroneous, then they're not worth my time to uh, associate with. Same with organizations. It's like, if you don't like what a certain retailer does, like Amazon, then you don't buy from them. And that's what I do. I'm very discretionary in who I buy from and what I buy. Very 
the same with a lot of different topics. So discretion when it comes to these types of topics is very, very important when having relationships with others. So today I have fewer relationships. However, the relationships I have are based on mutual respect and open-mindedness. You know, for instance, uh, and this does cover a lot of topics. If somebody has a fucked up view of something that I know is basically wrong and they're adamant about it, well, one of two things. If I, if their relationship is essential to me in some way, then we, I stay away from that topic. If it's not, I don't have anything to do with them. And yeah, socializing is very important, and I get enough of it to keep me in good condition, in good repair. I don't really use Facebook for that. Facebook is nice to connect with old friends and all those types of things. However, I don't really like to use social media for that kind of stuff because it's really not as productive as, hey, let's go and meet at the park and take a walk and maybe have some coffee afterwards or something like that. The comparison between those two types of engagement is vast. It's a vast difference in what I've seen. Now, when it comes to uh, business... I sell things, and I want to sell things to people who need them and who can benefit from them. And if they don't need it or don't benefit, I ferret that out, and I send them information, and I get away from them. Because they're not going to buy anything, but I'm not going to talk them out of buying anything from me. I'm not going to try to persuade them into it, and I really don't use a lot of persuasive selling techniques. I found that simply what I do, it's really cool that I'm able to sell products that I don't have to do a big used car sales pitch on. I'm grateful because the products are so good that they sell themselves. And all I have to do is present the information which shows the prospect or the lead that this has benefit for them. If they don't see there's benefit, I don't argue with them. I mean, if they present why it's not beneficial, then I don't argue. I move on. It's easier to find someone else who will reap benefit and who will buy. The other part is if they have the money. If they don't have the money, you know, I have to present them with uh, places they might be able to get it and then get the hell out of there. Because if they can't, if they're not able to get the money, they're not going to buy it, uh, so there's those types of things. It is stacking up the the supposed the like the old Ben Franklin positives and negatives of looking at something. So it's not beneficial to me or them, or not possible financially. I move on, and they may get the money and come back to me. So I try to, I really work hard at sowing the seeds of positive information, so they will be able to discern. Now, I have used negative selling techniques, which I also believe have benefit. Because if I have competitors that are disreputable, selling inferior quality product and lying about it, I'm going to call them out. I'm going to call them out. They have to be called out. You know, too many people have this fucking libertarian view of business, which is wrong. If you have a product, you can sell it. And it's okay if you sell it. 
So we've seen a lot where it's not. Look at the multi-level marketing scams. And there's this guy named Janie, I think, is J-A-N-I, he's on YouTube, and he talks a lot about that and the law of attraction and what scams all this crap is. So when dealing with that type of thing and those types of mentalities, if I care about someone, I'm going to present information that's contrary to that. So they, And if they still decide to do it, then we're probably not going to have an active relationship because their view of things and approach to things is going to be tainted by what I consider to be bullshit. And I really don't need them in my life because they're not going to really benefit me because of the way they're thinking is negative and unhealthy. That's across the board. Organizations, products, businesses, one-on-one, family. The thing about it is, people talk about deal breakers. Well, I've found that it's better to look for deal makers. And if a relationship, I don't care what it is, friend, lover, business, whatever, family, if it's not productive, then it has to get skipped. You just skip it. Don't have to get into you're a cocksucker or you're a motherfucker and I don't like you and you're full of shit. No, don't have to get into that. Okay, that's the way you think. Okay, no problem. I don't even tell them that I'm out. Now, if they get a hold of me and they want to pursue it, I'll say, look, the way you think is not conducive to the way I live my life. And so I bless you, take care. We're not going to have a relationship. And sometimes they'll react negatively to that. I can even make it sweeter and nicer than that. However, I won't cross over into apologism. See, this is another area where people get it all fucking wrong, is they become apologists. Yes, and that goes heavily over into religion and into politics and things like that. And I'm going to cover that in the next segment. Yes, the self, in the Eastern view, either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together. And this is a greater self inside and outside the person. I sort of like those views much better. I uh, I, I read a lot of Alan Watts in those days, and I really liked Alan Watts' book about not existing or not being, as he called it. And I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. Uh, because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, ex- you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist, and maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a hallucination of some greater force. Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I just don't think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because what my life has consisted of is great amounts of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kerbisky on this one. So 
I really think that we we do. We we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I you know the grief had me tortured inside for many many years, and and when I was nineteen, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender, and at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians. And they were very, very crazed, in, in my opinion. Um, so, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, yes, the self in the Eastern view either does not exist or it's part of a greater self, which is kind of the Atman situation, which is all things together and this is a greater self inside and outside the person i sort of like those views much better i uh i i read a lot of alan watts in those days and i really liked alan watts book about not existing or not being as he called it and I don't think we are beings. I think we do. Uh, I don't think we're like beings. Uh, because what that gets around to, in my view, is that we we be, we don't, ex- you know, uh, we be, we're just, we exist. And maybe we don't. Maybe we're, you know, maybe we're just a, a hallucination of some greater force. Okay, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I just don't think, uh, I don't think that's an adequate description because, what my life has consisted of is great amounts of doing things. Thinking is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. Believing is a form of doing as far as I'm concerned. I'm with Count Kerbisky on this one. So I really think that we, we do. We, we don't necessarily be. Anyway, along those lines, I, you know, the grief had me tortured inside for many, many years, and and when I was 19, I was working for the city of Phoenix as a uh, court tender. And at that time, I got introduced to some crazed evangelical Christians, and they were very, very crazed, in in my opinion. Um, So, at that particular point, I got saved. I started hanging around with these people. I started reading the Bible every day, all you know, throughout the day and in the evenings. I uh, I quit smoking pot and taking any other drugs. I drank a little bit, not too much. So that was basically my uh, that was my my situation with that. Um, <clears throat> 